Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast, the official podcast of the International Horn Society. My name is James Bolden, publications editor for the IHS and your host. Today's episode is one that's very special to me, very near and dear to my heart. It is an interview with Douglas Hill, uh, retired professor emeritus of horn from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I uh, completed my master's and doctoral degree studying with uh, Doug. I can't say enough nice things about him as a teacher, uh, a mentor, and now as a a colleague and and close, close friend, and, and still a mentor in many ways to me in my professional life. I have so many fond memories of my time in Madison, as do uh, many, many uh, alums that I've spoken with over the years, some obviously from my time there, but then others from uh, well before and then also well after. So it, uh, in many ways, it's a very special place and continues to be. Uh, but enough about that. On to my interview um, and conversation with uh, Doug. Uh, we talked about what he's been doing since retirement, how he's remained uh, musically active and engaged in, in both uh, composition and horn playing and and teaching and doing clinics and that sort of thing. Uh, he retired in 2011. We kind of bridged that gap between his retirement and then going into the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, talked a little bit about his various publications, of which he has many. Two that I would really like to draw your attention to are um, his books, Collected Thoughts on Teaching and Learning, Creativity, and Horn Performance, as well as Extended Techniques for the Horn. Both are just classics in um, in the literature for, for every serious horn player, performer, teacher, and otherwise. So I hope you'll check those out. The International Horn Society is uh, very fortunate that Doug has been uh, sending us his compositions for uh, inclusion in the International Horn Society's online music sales library, and you can find those at hornsociety.org. Just follow the links for uh, online music sales. Uh, They are available in PDF at a very, very reasonable price. the, the, the royalty uh, agreement is such that it makes it very beneficial to both parties, both the IHS and the composer and or arranger of the works that are uh, included there. So be sure to check out not only the OMS Douglas Hill collection, but all of the other compositions found there. Uh, other things we talked about, uh, <laughs> talked a little bit about his passion for birds and birding, which uh, I, I knew during my time at, at Wisconsin, and he's, he's written some... Um, some interesting pieces that incorporate elements of that uh, passion into them. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoy uh, enjoyed having it. Uh, some other things to be aware of, uh, as always, keep your sights set on IHS 53, which is coming up in August of 2021. This will be a uh, virtual symposium, but I hope that it has all of the excitement and variety that one would find in a face-to-face symposium. I hope that everyone is well and enjoying uh, hopefully some, some amount of rest and relaxation this summer. But yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you were willing to do this, and uh, we could we could talk for hours, I'm sure, as we did in lessons and that sort of thing. But um, you know, it I thought a good place to start might be to kind of talk about um, you know, so you retired from UW Madison in 2011, and where where did things go from there? Did you find yourself 
as, as many people, my, my parents are both retired. They, you know, you're kind of trying to search around and figure out what you're going to do with yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and, and was that a challenge for you? And what have you been doing in, in those years since you've, uh, retired? Oh boy. Uh, it was, a. it was thought about before, uh, you know, my wife and I talked a lot about, um, in retirement, where would you like to go? Would you like to go to the Southwest and live in Arizona or go, go do some, uh, some sort of other environment? And um, what do we want from a, a town that you're living in when you retire? And it just kept coming back to Madison uh, because this, is, this has been a town that we have loved for, you know, since 1974. Uh, and uh, so... That was that was a large part of it is it, that we kind of wanted to do the things in the city of Madison that we didn't have time to do because there was there was so much to do wonderful restaurants et cetera and so forth. We also became a little more actively involved in the Unitarian Church, which is where we uh, had attended to some extent, but became uh, became much more active over there in that we were sort of building up new friendship relationships and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that became pretty active, and, and actually over a period of a year, uh, not too long ago, three or four years, three years ago, two years ago, uh, I was tapped to chair the committee to to pick the new choir director. So we, uh, you know, that came up right to the very end. Um, so I had to jump on the phone and, and move on that because the next day I was having lung surgery. <laughs> so my, oh my this whole thing, yeah. this whole thing had happened on the way up to um, my diagnosis. Was uh, I had a very small uh, stage one lung cancer situation that uh, had to have an operation, removal of a lobe, which is another. So let's carry that over into what have I done on the French horn lately? And uh, well, that's fifteen percent less lung capacity that I've got now than I used to, and um, so forth. So basically, even before that, I had pretty much stopped playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the horn itself, uh, I played a little bit for the first couple of years, did a little extra playing um, now and then. But uh, part of what was happening to me also is this is old. This is you're talking to an old guy, right? I'm 75. <laughs> next week, I'm 75 years old. Uh, but I've got arthritis in both thumbs and in my hands and um, that thumb valve. I really like to be flat side. And right. uh, yeah, I liked holding up my horn on my, on my right hand and that's right there on that. And so there was some pain issues there that uh, were starting to increase and they're, they're hanging in there, it's okay. But basically there are these issues, but also I have another instrument that when I was back in junior high school, high school and all the way through college that paid my way and that was playing jazz string bass mm-hmm. so uh, I thought well this is a time to take out my bass and see what can happen so during uh, five or six probably starting about the second year of my retirement for the next five or six years uh, I was playing in a group called Full House Quintet which was just an improvisation group that, that met over at Joan Wildman's house Mm-hmm. And Joan was a was a faculty person that I had known, and she'd been retired for a while. Uh, and she was jazz and theory, and a constant t- constantly teaching us all all the time. But it was really fun, and she's a very 
contemporary, aggressive, avant-garde-ish kind of player. And so this group was went both ways as we were all kind of trying to reach towards her and she was trying to reach back to playing <laughs> tunes and playing chord changes and learning songs because she'd never really done a, a whole lot of that. So it was a real group, really, really nice group. It was made up of a typical jazz quintet. It was, uh, when we started, it was two bassoons, viola, violin, and jazz bass. <laughs> That's very, our very, very typical, right? Very typical jazz quintet. And... Uh, <laughs> And we, we, each of us wrote songs and we produced five different CDs, you know, a hundred copies of, you know, mm -hmm. one of those things of your front room CD production <laughs> and, you know, shared it with friends and family. But we all wrote tunes of our own and learned to play them and improvise on them. Every one of them had to be improvised, had some improvisational elements involved. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so that was great fun. So I started writing a lot of songs, a lot of tunes. And we were playing once a week, we'd get together and, and do that stuff. And the bass playing was coming along, getting a lot better. For some reason or other, my thumbs didn't get involved hardly involved in that because I don't play correctly with my left hand anyway. I fist it, you know. And uh, my right hand, it's it's the it's the fingers, you know, the index and second finger or index yeah third finger whatever you it's the second valve you know uh, -huh. uh those those two fingers are the only ones i use in the right hand and it was just it was just great fun and we just did what we could do as long as we could uh, the bassoon faculty member um who was one of the two bassoon players he switched to clarinet and so <laughs> we were we were then a quintet of clarinet viola bassoon string bass and piano that's awesome and uh, I did a little native flute thing, and uh, I played a few percussion things on some of our recordings, some rattles and so forth. Anyway, so that was fun. That was a, a big part of uh, my being musically active, that, and singing in the church choir, which mm -hmm. I don't sing at all. So the choir was just a thing that I was doing mostly as a uh, friend and friends and family. Karen mm -hmm. was, the, was doing a lot of librarian work. So that's basically it is is what those things were but then sitting here at home in my cave uh here in the basement of the house i've been involved in uh in a lot of the compositions that mm -hmm. were sitting in the drawer i uh, looked back over a lot of the old ones and um started writing a few little things a few people asked me to write some pieces and so i've i've uh I don't know how many have come since 2011, but there've been a few, and uh, it's it's been in the dozens, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the motivation is, of course, the uh, online music sales group who invited me, and and I will be forever indebted and gratitude for the fact that you you've uh, allowed me to to present a collection of these pieces. And make them available through the Horn Society, and hopefully have, make some money for you guys. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can't speak for the whole committee, but I, I feel like I, I could represent probably their general thinking about it. Is we this is this music needs to be out there. I mean, you're you're prolific. You're writing. You write well for the horn. You're a you're a known composer and, and pedagogue and teacher. And there's a whole generation of students now that are coming along that. You know, we, we want to make sure that they they know this music because it's it's it should be part of the repertoire. It is part of the repertoire. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. So it's been, and you guys have been very helpful in uh, at times putting together, um, you know, much cleaner editions than my manuscripts. And, uh, and that's been extremely helpful and appreciated because now they're out there ready for PDFs that people can read and uh, they're accurate and, and that sort of thing. So it's, that's been really, as far as I'm concerned professionally or in relationship to a, uh, a linear movement in my career, that's the most important aspect. The other was kind of recreational that I've been explaining up to this point, but right now, really getting back because even when as I was writing music all along I as I look back at it I didn't think I was that active but once you look back and see mm -hmm. 65 70 pieces for horn <laughs> that are that are sitting out there that uh, that it's been a big part of my life and uh, it's musically right now it's probably the most significant part of my life it, is uh, getting these things together and uh, making them available and and hearing about people playing and getting some responses and every once in a while hearing a recording or two from what people have done. And uh, so that's been great fun. And I'm not not quite stopping with that. I'm, as as you know, I've written this article. Yeah. So this is going to be in the May, uh, the May 2021 issue of the Horn Call. And this is I actually had a, a kind of a to stepping back a little bit. So it never occurred to me to ask you, I'm sure you're familiar with this, you know, the students get so wrapped up in being a student that they never think what what it's what's it like to be a, a professor till they're actually in those shoes and looking at things. And I, I don't know how you ever found the time to compose. Do, were you mostly doing it in the summer or kind of just grabbing, grabbing a few minutes here and there? It was almost totally summer. Okay. And so that got, it got to be a, sort of a research-like thing because okay. I, I got kind of interested in, in researching third stream concepts and mm -hmm. uh, music. Well, I, I did a, a five-year period of Native American mm -hmm. study where I just was learning the Indian flutes and the, and the percussion and got a lot of those and wrote pieces for, for dance. And uh, I even wrote a piece for the Omaha Symphony and the Omaha Indians mm -hmm. for the Nebraska Sesquicentennial. So there was all kinds of compositions. That was, that was the only piece, that one for the Omaha Symphony, I think is the only piece I wrote during the school year. And wow. it practically drove me crazy because there was their deadline. Right. Uh, the commission and and so I tried to do that Christmas break Thanksgiving you know I mean anytime there was oh, a free home and that was that was really difficult uh, but because basically my pattern was to teach uh, for nine months mm -hmm. apply for grants if right. I could right uh, or accepting commissions if I did get a few of those every once in a while and I'd set aside a month or two and then I just, you know, I have to get into a zone if I'm going to write a new piece. I just kind of have to get in a zone and be in that place, be thinking those songs and melodies and rhythms and chords and keep that going um, in a flow. I want, I have to get to some place where you talk, you know, you talk about that when you're in a creative state of mind where you can right. just sort of flow and uh, lose track of time and get it done. Some, some things came really fast. Others I had to really work hard at, but it's, that's the case. And it was just always a wonderful challenge experience to do that. But uh, being a professor uh, and being an active performer mm -hmm. while you're being a professor uh, is hugely time consuming because the what you invest in your students psychically is uh, enough 
you know, right. I mean, even if you have six, seven, eight students, but uh, if you have 15 or 16 students all the time, and uh, some of them are doctoral students, which can be easy, can be a lot more work because of what they're working on, how much you want to invest in the relate and uh, deal each situation. Each person was a whole other whole other set. But what I have I have found is the most interesting, and I saw this fairly early on with uh, you know accomplished students of mine who go out and get a teaching position and uh, come back in a couple three years and said, "I had no idea how hard that was," you know yeah. it. Because, and you know, you can speak to this and uh, we all have had to go into it. You, I can talk to you about teaching and we can talk about uh, theories of teaching and mindsets and so forth, but it's all about who you are in relationship to who that person is and how you relate, uh, what kind of dedication and how you invest your empathy, but also your own playing time and your own, uh, your own psyche and creative juices to uh, to help others to be mm -hmm. focused on others, you know. So I think it's I think it must be extremely hard to be a symphony musician whose basic job, you know, I have been that, but I wasn't mm -hmm. for a long period of time where my my basic job was playing principal horn or playing playing horn in the symphony uh, that rehearses uh, five times a week and plays three concerts or something like that. Uh, and having to, to keep your own face and chops and mindset going. And then for hours and hours and hours, you're in there empathizing with the problems of all kinds and levels of, of uh, abilities and inabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's an extremely uh, stressful and, and a difficult thing. And then what about writing music on top of that? Well, that's why I kind of pretty much set it, set it out to the, uh, to the summer because... I didn't then teach very much in the summer. Did you find that having that break and well, not even really a break, but having that change in gears and change in momentum in the summer of devoting yourself to composing projects and grants and that kind of thing. Did you find that that helped you recharge and did you feel rested and refreshed uh, come September when it was time to, to get back into the swing of things? Well, I could say recharge is probably a good word to rest and refresh. I'm not sure. Uh, it depends on what else is going on in the summers. I mean, right. yeah, we would go on vacations. My daughter was uh, born in 83. And so during those years, the mid 80s and early 90s and so forth, we would, you know, wanted to travel, wanted to do a little bit of this, that and the other so that she could sure. grow up and see what life is like out in the beautiful United States. And then she also took trips with her choir down to to Japan, Canada, and uh, Brazil. <laughs> she got to oh, wow. travel. But anyway, as that was going through, that that family thing was really important. So the summers were, yeah, I, I, it was it was a recharging in the fact that it was it was stretching out. And I, you know this, and uh, if anybody has read or seen my book on collective thoughts, diversity is what I think makes the performer. A performer who teaches is probably a better performer. A teacher who performs is probably a better teacher. A teacher who composes is probably a better performer and teacher. And, uh, you know, a, a composer who can improvise is probably even much farther along. Basically, the, the diversity, I, I really like the breathing aspect of nine months on, uh, three months uh, on 
composing and, mm-hmm. or on family or, you know, having a lot more time to do that. Sure. But having been at home and not touring a whole lot, but during the middle, middle years, my wife and I did a lot of performing on tour, a lot more before uh, Emily came. Mm-hmm. But, um, but even a little bit afterwards, and we recorded and, and did some of that sort of thing. So that was, that was really wonderful and important, and I uh, sort of missed doing some of that as time went on. But, uh, but playing in the, in the Madison Symphony was just about enough. So that's, that's another part of the breathing during the, during the year, too, mm-hmm. is having a concert maybe once or twice a month and right. uh, not rehearsals every night. Right. But then the symphony started to get a whole lot busier mm-hmm. in the uh, late 1990s. We got a new conductor, and it was improving greatly. And we got a new hall, and things were wonderful in that way. But uh, by around 2003 or so, um, mm-hmm. I decided to stop playing in the symphony uh, because it was getting to be almost a full... Whenever the symphony had a concert set coming up, it was like a full-time symphony orchestra. Right. And, and so that was all day and all night, all day and all night. What happened is, is I had a, an ailment that they couldn't figure out. I was coughing mm. and I couldn't stop coughing a lot. And it was uh, some sort of a strange thing that they had a number of exams and so forth. They never did quite figure it out. So but I took a leave of absence from the symphony mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, you can't sit there and just before Oberon starts, you start coughing. You know, like, it doesn't work. It, right. People, people don't like that. But uh, also, I, we, I had a recording session where we had to stop a couple times because I had breaking into a cough. But so I, I took a year's leave of absence. And the first Saturday of the first concert of the fall of the year that I took off, Karen and I went for a walk up in the Cedar Wildlife Refuge and saw our first wild whooping crane in the sunset at about the moment that the symphony was about to start. And this is the kind of thing we couldn't ever do. We couldn't go out on walks on Saturdays and Sundays Mm -hmm. because I had the symphony concerts and the rehearsal. It just kind of, you know, uh, the brick across the side of the head said, okay, you've done this for 30 years, principal horn for 30 years in the orchestra, but here I can see a whooping crane in the sunlight Mm -hmm. and just watch it walk. Mm-hmm. You know, for a half hour, we just stood there until the sun went down. And I, that that's kind of one of those aha moments where I said, okay, I've taken a year's leave of absence. Maybe that's what I'm going to continue to do. Mm-hmm. We figured out what the cough was. It was basically allergies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's been contained ever since. But uh, it was a, one of those moments, you know, where you make the best decision you can considering the situation. Well, and th- this was this was right kind of in the middle of my time at at, at UW Madison, and I this kind of hits on another point that I was gonna gonna talk about and bring up with you is that I, I don't think at least to me and the other students that I that I knew really well there it was never a thing of oh he's he's giving up this thing that he shouldn't give up it was it, it was important to me to see my mentors and the people that I idolized making smart decisions about their career and prioritizing one thing over the other because it was the smart thing to do. And I, I feel like um, among the many other things that I learned at Wisconsin, watching the faculty, and not just you, but mostly you, but also the other brass faculty, you all seem to have figured out this work-life balance thing 
to the point where you weren't neurotic and running around and that starts to affect your students if the if the teacher seems like they're just barely hanging on that that you know can carry over into the studio you you all seemed to to be making it work and it's not like it didn't seem like you were busy you were of course very busy and keeping up your careers and your profiles and all those things but it made a huge impact on me to see how well you all were keeping things together and making time for your personal playing and making time for your students and making time for your family. And, and I, I feel very fortunate that I got to see that because I realized that that's not always the case, even at some really big programs. How great of you to say that. Thank you. That was, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's neat. Because, you know, I have no idea what you're seeing and what, what is affecting students as they're out there. But, uh, you know, just be, be yourself, be honest. Be true to to the way uh, the way you are, but it uh, it was that that was a difficult time, a difficult time to give up the symphony. But at the same time, thirty years on, and mm-hmm. uh, you move ahead. You know, the only constant is change, and uh, that's one of my basic mantras. And it's helping me get through the last few months. <laughs> you know, no but, kidding. But, yeah, there's uh, been quite a few changes for sure. <laughs> yeah, and the other mantra I was talking with my daughter about this things turn out best for those who make the best out of the way things turn out. Absolutely. Which was a motto that I had boasted up in my room all the time. Things mm-hmm. turn out best for those who make the best out of the way things turn out. I'm not sure who that quote was. I've seen it attributed to two or three different people, but mm-hmm. I got it from from Nancy Becknell's husband. Anyway, that's that's interesting that you you notice those things because it is it is just people being people trying to make it through make it through the day and you can do it you can do it as well as you possibly can and and that means you're taking care of yourself but you're taking care of the others that you're responsible for and -hmm. and finding i like the word balance that's the that's the trick absolutely now did you ever and you know you you can be as detailed or as general with this as you like uh did you ever in your career feel that you were approaching the point of burnout and realize I, you know, that maybe that Madison Symphony decision was one of those things, but did you ever feel like I've taken on too many responsibilities or that I can't continue to, to do everything this way? I need to maybe step back or maybe I don't need to be on that committee or maybe I need to go a different direction. That's, that's something I, I think about a lot, kind of, I guess, being mid-career where I am. I'm, I'm seeing younger faculty and then I see faculty who are you know, navigating uh, retirement and that sort of thing. And I want to make sure that I try to be as as effective as I can be for as long as I can be. And like you said, making the the good decisions and trying to trying to just get through it all and and stay sane (laughs) at the end of the day. I think I never did reach burnout. Exactly. I I blew my lip out once for about a month, but that was Mm. (laughs) as as it got. But I never. I never got to burnout because I, I started it in in the Rochester Philharmonic right out of college, out of my bachelor's degree. I got the first horn job when Vern Reynolds retired. So I was really in a, a really wonderful place for being such a young guy. And uh, I'd had a lot of wonderful opportunities and a, lot, and a lot of the right place at the right time kind of situations took place. But so I got that position. But. But very early on in, in thinking of myself as a, a full-time symphony musician, I realized I personally wanted to work with other people more directly. I wanted to have teaching. 
So in Rochester, of course, there was Vern Reynolds and Milan Jancic were both in that town. And that's where the, 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 you know, the mature teaching was going to take place. And that's what was going to happen. So there was really no teaching place for me in that context. So I decided to try a, a university situation. I wanted to teach horn and play in, a, play in faculty ensembles. Having a studio, having autonomy, having autonomy. Mm-hmm. Not being told exactly when to start, when to stop. When, I mean, playing in a symphony is wonderful. I love that music. I, I'm loving it again. I, we're listening a lot to classical music these mm-hmm. last two or three years, actually. It's all, and I'm listening back to all these tunes and having great and wonderful memories of all the playing that I was able to do. And I always loved playing in an orchestra, but if that was all I was going to do and at that time, uh, I was just trying to decide who am I, what do I, you know, where do I fit best? Sit, uh, sitting in a chair, being told what I'm going to play next and then when I'm going to stop and when I'm going to start and uh, always sitting between the same two people. I think I could have, I, I probably would have burned out because if that was what I was doing all the time, I don't know I, mm. because I didn't, I didn't extend it long enough. But at the time, that was the best decision I could make mm-hmm. to try the college thing. And I really enjoyed working one-on-one with young people. Mm-hmm. We were all about my age at that time. So I, was about 20, I was about 23, 24. So I went back to Yale and got the got the master's degree, which was a pedigree that I needed to get a college teaching position of the ilk that I wanted to have. And so, uh, and then relatively quickly got got up here to Madison, but uh, mm-hmm. went through Florida for one year, University of South Florida. Uh, and that was a good job. I would have stayed there, but... Uh, when John Barrows passed, who who was actually the man that I wanted to study with a master's degree for many years. Hmm. But, uh, he was dying around that time. And so consequently, I studied from one of his uh, students, uh, Paul Ingram, who mm-hmm. is absolutely wonderful example of, of lyrical beauty in the horn. I just uh, admired so much his playing. So uh, and got to perform with him actually a number of mm-hmm. number of gigs in in New York City while I was there at Yale. But uh, when this job opened up up here in Madison, I did I basically I didn't think I could get it because I was twenty eight years old or something like that. Mm. And who was going to follow um, John Barrows? But but I found out from uh, from the administration up here that they were looking for somebody young because they had too many people that were old they're all going to retire at the same time so they have to, have to mix the number and mix the ages in there so so they picked me because i was 28 i guess um but it was just a it was the perfect situation in that i had a woodwind quintet at that time and symphony orchestra mm-hmm. and uh, an established horn studio that all i had to do was to try to sustain it as best i could and it was just you know it was an absolutely wonderful great career but um so I've deviated from it, but basically what I'm saying is that that I've been so fortunate and have had so many right places at the right time kinds of situations happen. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was also ready for them at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did practice. I was ready for the auditions. I was ready for the interviews. Mm-hmm. But uh, but still, those things don't always happen. Don't, they're not available for people. And and uh, it just turned out that I was was capable of getting those opportunities and making something out of it. But because of the autonomy, because of the part of the fact that if I've got a studio and I'm in a situation like the one that I have here, 
-hmm. Nobody was telling me I had to teach 30 students. Nobody said that I had to do any. It was take the studio, do what you need to do, provide us with some good horn players so that our bands and orchestras can sound good and we can have some chamber music around here. So just be sure you kind of have enough people in your studio and and uh, get as good a ones as you can and, you know, maybe teach them, maybe even teach them something. But uh, because of that and because I was in a situation with such good people, uh, I never, never really had to go any faster or harder than I was capable of doing at the time. Not really ever. After I was done being president of Horn Society for two and a half years or so, the time that I spent there, that burned me out because mm -hmm. that was that was on top of teaching when we were kind of reconstructing the society and putting it together. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to read about that in uh, Jeff Snedeker's book on the yep. on the Horn Society that'll be coming out. The fifty years of the history of the Horn Society. That's going to be a great book. Yeah, I've, I've already parts of it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, but during that period of time, 78, 80s, when we were kind of becoming incorporated, and we did all kinds of things, organizational things that that us uh, kind of established the grounding groundwork. After all of the wonderful first seven years or so of the society, things were being sort of put together, but they weren't quite official, quite legal, quite you know right. established as a as a not for profit organization. Blah blah blah. So that, I, I guess if I had to jump in and say, was I ever burnt out? At that point, I was. But the beauty of that was that I went to my administration here at the university and said, I'm doing all this stuff. Don't you think that's important for our school of music that I'm doing all this stuff? And they said, yes, you do not have to be on any committees. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful so so i was i had no committee except the you know brass area so that that was wonderful that i got that opportunity no that's fantastic yeah it's uh again as as kind of a model for finding and 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 sustaining a career that's going to enable you to you know to, to to be successful and to flourish because people are a resource as much as money, right? If you burn through them, they're gone. It's, you know, <laughs> that's once, once, once somebody's burned out, it's hard to get anything out of them anymore till they've had a chance to recover and, and rebuild. So I think it's, it's an organization's best interest not to burn out their employees or their faculty and, or what have you. So. And I really want to give credit in my career teaching here at the UW to Nancy Becknell. She retired in 93. But in, in 1974, uh, I came to there, and she was there as a part-time teacher. She and her husband, Art Becknell, who was on the piano faculty, he was full-time. But she was uh, a part-time horn, and then she played in at that time in the brass quintet, and I played in the woodwind quintet. Mm -hmm. So we had two faculty quintets, and she was teaching, you know, uh, a third time, something like that, six, seven students which was wonderful. That helped us have a, a nice big studio. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to teach a whole ton of a lot. But the, the beauty of that was that of any and every situation I've ever seen in a teaching context where there are two people that are teaching, never once have I seen anything so beautiful as Nancy Becknell as a colleague. Because it was just perfect. My concern when I first came was that very thing. Am I going to be teaching with somebody else? I wanted I wanted my students to take lessons from Nan, and Nan wanted her students to take lessons from me, and and then anybody else who wanted to give. Because this is about the student finding their way, and their 
there's all different personalities and all different inputs and effective ways of teaching. But I do want to, I, I want to mention that in this case, because I, it was a dream to have a friend like that, a colleague like that, a dear family friend to all of us. Mm-hmm. And, um, she was just absolutely amazing. Some people might recognize the name Steve Becknell, mm-hmm. who is a uh, primary, one of the you know primary players out in Hollywood. It was one of uh, their kids. And mm-hmm. he started with lessons with me in high school and in college. And he was, he was hilarious and an absolutely wonderful <laughs> colleague, a, a wonderful student to have, and then an amazing friend still. Yeah. But uh, he uh, was a part of that Becknell family that uh, that I just love to think about and and uh, give praise because that was that was a dream to be able to teach uh, one and a half horn teachers and part of the reason nobody had one and a half trumpet teachers or one and a half clarinet teachers here <laughs> but it was Nan Vecnell uh-huh. that was the whole thing right. it wasn't because they wanted to support the horn studio any more than they wanted to support any other studio is because when you have a person of that caliber that you can have as a colleague, they stay, they work. She was a major, major contributor and a a perfect colleague. And so I had, I had that joy. So maybe that's part of the reason I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. burned out either because I uh, uh, got to teach with her for all those years. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, I still, I, I was very fortunate. I inherited some of the music that she donated to oh. your to your studio. I remember one day, I think we got an email that said, I've, I've, Nan Becknell has donated several boxes of music. Anybody that wants it <laughs> for, I think you gave the doctoral students maybe first dibs and we came yeah. up and, and, and picked it over and then the, you know, master students and undergrads and stuff. But yeah, I still have, I've got a few editions of things with her signature, either her signature or John Barrow's signature. The Reinberger, mm-hmm. the Reinberger Sonata I have has got John Barrow's signature on it, which is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, Nan must have inherited it from him, and then it came through. Came yeah, through she's, she taught with him, too, yeah, for quite a so. while. And, uh, yeah, that, that's that's very cool. I remembered that. Yeah, those are good times. And that yeah, was for sure. on her part. Yeah. Well, uh, Doug, I don't want to I don't want to keep you too long here, but I, there were two things I wanted to ask you about. Um, I guess we should come back around to this article that you've written about uh, unaccompanied horn repertoire. So you'd been exploring this as, um, you know, the, the pandemic has basically shut down a lot of, you know, obviously large ensemble music making and even some chamber music to, to some extent. So that that's opened up the possibility for a lot more of solo playing and, and particularly unaccompanied playing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, that, I mean, that's what I started thinking about. If I was still playing, what would I be playing? Well, obviously, I wouldn't be playing with them quintets and not like people aren't able to get together. Mm-hmm. So you're by yourself in your houses. I mean, all these students and so forth. So, uh, but also I happen to, and I mentioned this in the article quite a bit. I, I've had a love affair with un, unaccompanied music anyway, because there is there is some good stuff out there. There was not a lot for a while, but now... Um, as I noticed um, just a couple of years ago, this book was published. Mm-hmm. You, I'm sure you have it. It's yep. called Solo, Solo Horn Repertoire, Guide to the Solo Horn Repertoire, Linda Dimpf and uh, Richard Serafino. And in there, there's 101 pages of unaccompanied horn solos. Mm-hmm. 
tons of pieces that I had no idea were in there. But as I started writing the, the article, that's what it was. But at the time, when I was uh, in the 1980s, I, I would do a recital. It was all unaccompanied. Mm-hmm. And um, I explained that in the, in the article, what the pieces were. Uh, and the ways that I was, some suggestions of, of how I made it more interesting with bell direction and mm-hmm. changing tampers and certainly contrasting the pieces and the styles of pieces. Mm-hmm. And even even to the point of playing a Chinese uh, Chinese melody that was written by this Chinese fellow that I had met when I was over there. Uh, and I tried to sound like an air who put my tongue up like that inside my mouth when I'm playing. And it gives it a really, really kind of a honky oh, air, who, yeah. air who sound, and so and, and and doing the kinds of gestures on the on the music that the, that a Chinese air who okay. player would do. Anyway, uh, those kinds of contrasts and, and and just having fun trying to make unaccompanied interesting. Then uh, also uh, Gunther Schuler produced a recording of all unaccompanied pieces with mm-hmm. me doing it. It was his last LP which means it didn't get much circulation because everybody wanted to start buying CDs at that time, around 1986-87. What I put in there was the Vern Reynolds elegy that he wrote mm-hmm. for me and my jazz set for solo horn, all four movements of that, and an Avram David piece, uh, all 12-tone, very heavy piece, mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, the Apostel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I did record Interstellar Call of Messiaen because I was performing that a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the publisher would not allow that separate from the symphony. Right. So, uh, somehow, about 20 years later, uh, I can't remember who it is, but I saw it on a CD as mm-hmm. a solo. Yeah. He composed it as a solo piece. Originally, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's everybody knows that came first, and then came the symphony. But um, anyway, the, these unaccompanied pieces were all terribly important and interesting to me. And so, along the way, I was writing, mm-hmm. uh, and the extended techniques book that I did in the, in the uh, early '80s uh, prompted an awful lot of this because that language of all all the sounds that the horn could make that are so interesting. Colorful. I, I wanted to document them in that book, and so during that time, I wrote the jazz soliloquies and the jazz set for solo horn around those times, which were both unaccompanied. And so many of these uh, colors and sounds and gestures and notational ideas are uh, are much more prevalent in jazz mm-hmm. than they even are in classical music. But they are in classical music as well. Vibrato types of vibratos and glissandi. Mm-hmm all the different types of Gosandi and so forth. So uh, that I was real active in that space at that time. So I got started kind of writing those uh, kinds of pieces. And then I just kept going. And I, my, my compositional output is everything from, from very simple, very simple melodies, like a folk song. The Americana Variations is, is based on an original folk mm-hmm. song. How can it be an original folk song? Well, it's, it's, it's the style of a... Of a, of a period of time when, when people were writing that way. And then I did the theme variation. So that was one of them when this pandemic thing came up that I thought, well, here's this quartet that I wrote, Americana Variations. Mm-hmm. And it's it's basically a melodic piece with that's been harmonized for four horns. So let's just deal with this, the melodic material mm-hmm. and uh, create a theme variations on Americana. 
So that's one of the early things that I did this uh, this year to get things started. Uh, and then I was also just thinking, wouldn't it be fun just to, you know, if you have a birthday with somebody over a Zoom, you can play your horn, play, play happy birthday. So mm-hmm. uh, I got to thinking back a few years ago, I wrote out an unaccompanied version of Ode to Joy mm-hmm. for um, a celebration of a naming of a department. And so anyway, it's a long story. But um, I had written the Ode to Joy as just a sort of a celebratory solo to play for others. And it has all kinds of you know, that kind of fun dancing mm-hmm. around. And and that was I, I always kind of enjoyed playing it. It's kind of a, would be a decent little encore number. But I started thinking started writing out other songs, Amazing Grace, you know, mm-hmm. um, Going Home, Old Lang Syne, mm-hmm. We Wish You a Merry Christmas, which became We Wish You a Hallelujah. Because it's we wish you a Merry Christmas, a Hallelujah chorus, and little jingle bells all together in, into one unaccompanied solo. I love and it. And so it's, it's called Familiar Melodies. And so I put together like there's 15 different melodies in 12 different pieces of just those kinds of things that you can play by yourself. And like Danny Boy, you know, for mm-hmm. the, just the various kinds of things that, um, that could be fun. Also, Old Man River, I like that. I'm, Wrote that down. There's a nice big low, solo low horn kind of thing, and then uh, <laughs> the the craziest thing that I did is I was looking through some of the poetry that I had written years and years ago. These weren't really exactly poems; they're just sort of observations about birds in our backyard. Uh-huh. And what am I doing? I'm here looking out my window at the birds. It's one of my projects every day is to make sure that the feeders are up and that the. Uh-huh. Heated swimming pool is ready for the birds out front. <laughs> so, I, I mean, we love birds and we have forever. And so I decided, to, looking at this poem thing, decided to write Yard Birds, mm-hmm. which is a new one that just got published. And uh, But what it is, is uh, it's got this poem and Yard Birds. The other thing I like is jazz, in case you hadn't noticed. And um, Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. his nickname is Bird. Yep. Okay. And Charlie Parker has a couple of tunes. One's called Yardbird Suite, and the other one's called Ornithology. And so I took little snippets of mm-hmm. those two pieces, and that was the those were the germs that started the tunes that stop and you say a thing, and then you play again, and then you mm-hmm. stop and play. So you're playing along, dancing through some of these tunes, and all of a sudden you say constant rockets, multi-metric constant rockets. You know, that kind of a thing. And and it's about the crows, the crow mm-hmm. patrol, who are out there <laughs> making this constant rockets, chasing down the raptors and, you know, making a music all their own. And so the piece is kind of fun. It's a, it's an attempt, attempt of playing and narrating from your horn by yourself. And so that's one of the projects that I've done in the last few months. And then haiku readings is the other one, which is, uh, going back to a lot of extended techniques because I've chosen seven haiku, haiku by a friend of mine who gave me permission to use them in a piece. Each of them is just a moment, you know, a chrysalis trembles or the way a heron's leg moves in the water, you know, I mean, whatever, however the haiku goes. And uh, each of these pieces is to be read by the player and then the piece is played. It's not the 
they're not inside each other. Mm-hmm. But it's again a, a poetry relationship thing. That's fantastic. That, yeah, those are the the most recent things that I've done uh, the, for the unaccompanied thing, and I, so I'm just kind of trying to spread out my head a little bit and, and enjoy a few things. And then I put together a brass quartet, by the way. So that's an old piece. That's a piece that was premiered back when I was in uh, in college, undergrad. Yeah. And I looked at a few of these old ones. I like some of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them I don't. The one I'm looking at right now, I'm practically changing everything, <laughs> including the instruments. But it's 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 stimulating some ideas. And so that's kind of where I'm going with this. Well, we're very lucky to that you were... I mean, you. I think you. You kind of have the opposite view of us. We're we're not doing you a favor, though. I think you're you're doing us the favor, the IHS, by making these new and and older compositions available on the the online music sales. Because you you could be publishing these through some big publisher, and you know, I I, I think anybody out there that's looking for music to play during this time should go check out the online music sales. I go there every couple of days and just, you know, check out what's in there. There's, there's always stuff that I've missed. Um, you know, I, I get the benefit of seeing new things that come through, but there were things that were added before I, I became a part of the committee. So, um, you know, students and anybody that's looking for fun stuff to play for sure, get out there and, and check out the library. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great idea. But, uh, well, Doug, thank you so much for, uh, taking some time out of your retirement to, to talk to me today. This is my but, pleasure. Um, I thought a good way to kind of wrap things up and, and kind of bring things full circle is if you have a few thoughts you might want to share with folks about the International Horn Society, uh, you know, people that are maybe aware of the organization but haven't haven't decided to join yet. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we could be spending our time and our money doing at this point, um, especially with, with all of the challenges that are going on in the world. But, um, you know, you're, you're like me, I'm sure we, we, we value the International Horn Society and, and what it does as an organization. So if there's any thoughts you want to share on that, I'd, I'd love to hear them. That's a whole other hour and a half. But um <laughs> I know the the young people think, yeah, don't tell me about what it was like in the olden times, but not until the Horn Society came through, which was right at at the, pretty much at the end of my graduate, undergraduate studies, Mm -hmm. uh, the end of the sixties, I was at Indiana University and graduated from there and then went to, to, to Rochester, as I mentioned. And then there was the first, uh, Horn Society meeting. I didn't get to go to that. Uh, but I think I was at the second and third one that were down in Florida. And going there, I was able to actually see and meet and hear, you know, Barry Tuckwell, blah, blah, blah. I can go down the list, you know, all of the all our, and Chambers and Farkas and Jones and, and, you know, Wendell Haas. However, would I have met Wendell Haas or Carl mm-hmm. uh, Geyer or, you know, all these famous names from three or four generations back. Uh, these are the, these are the heroes. These are the people. They, there was never, ever a way of doing that. Mm-hmm. As far as I knew, there were three or four people who recorded horn and those are the records I owned. And those mm-hmm. are the ones that I listened to. And then Dennis Brain, Herman Bauman, Barry Thuckwell, uh, a couple other guys. Uh, what, what the society has done is mm-hmm. you put all of these horn players together uh, and, and let them enjoy each other, mm-hmm. okay? And that's kind of what this is all about. 
is there's like-minded people coming together, enjoying each other, but also realizing that to make this really work and to make this really uh, reach out beyond um, at that particular time, which was the late 60s, early 70s, they didn't have all of this, mm-hmm. this ability to communicate. But to then get the, get the society together to get a magazine and then workshops once a year. And most of them were in the United States for a while. And then wisely, we started going over to, the, to other, other countries and really started reaching out. And meeting like minds and hearing and getting to know all these people that are doing and making so much work. And the, the thing that happens is there's a certain homogenization that took place with the, within horn playing. Horn players were more different from each other in the various countries back in the mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, 70s uh, than they are now. They're, they're, because everybody kind of knows everything. Now, how did that ever happen? Well, because of the International Horn Society. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is is a good thing. So you can play the way you want to play. There's not these uh, any restrictions, and, and there's all the opportunities to hear and know and listen and meet. And... Um, also opportunities for individuals to be seen mm-hmm. and to make a contribution if they want to, because there was no format. There was no net magazines. There's no uh, opportunities to make the contributions to like minds. Call it a, well, it is, it's just a society. I think that's a wonderful name for, it, I guess, mm-hmm. in that uh, we can all be social. We can all be professional. We can all be organizational and great people rise to the top as well as um, get opportunities to, to make those countries. So I think, I think for performers who have a little bit more of an option to, to being seen and being heard through recordings and television, university people don't have that opportunity quite so much. So to some extent, academia has driven the Horn Society to experience and appreciate the professional level players, the mm-hmm. soloists, and the, and a number of those people have also been quite actively involved. But uh, to some extent, it's like taking anybody who loves the horn can become a part of a society that of like minds that get to share and uh, share the love, share the excitement, share the passion for this crazy difficult instrument that sounds so good and uh there's been so much good music written for it it's being made available it's being made obvious it's being made um possible uh to expand now where it's going from here is is like where's education going from here you know this is not just the pandemic but the the technology Mm -hmm. and all that's uh that's possible and available you know, the, the rock and roll uh, jazz horn players that you can see all over mm-hmm. uh, YouTube right now. None of that was ever there. None of it would ever have happened if right. uh, there wasn't an outlet. The closest thing was Arkady Schilkloper. He's the first thing to, to kind of come up through here and start working the electronics and start mm-hmm. getting, a, a, you know, but he's pulling not from Russia, for crying out loud, not Germany. And uh, mm-hmm. But now there are just so many people. I, I'm... Uh, amazed at how few of the active horn players I know because there are so many of them (laughs) where it used to be quite quite the other and this is because uh, largely because of the International Horn Society Mm -hmm. so I obviously I'm a I'm a flag waver I'll lead the parade if if there is one 
but uh, definitely I applaud and it's been so exciting to watch all the people rise to the top that have and are doing what they're doing. What more can you say? It's, I guess you, the next thing is a network, right? We're going to have to right. yeah. create its own network. <laughs> well, Doug, thank you again. And uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you today. It's always good to talk to you, James.